Coming up on Tech Nation, it's a one, two, three punch for Alzheimer's. I speak with Dr. Jean Kinney, the president and CEO of Prathena Biosciences. They're fighting amyloids, they're fighting tau, and they're also working on a vaccine that just might prevent Alzheimer's altogether. We'll also hear from Daniel Pink about regret. It's that time of year, and there's no time like the present to dump those regrets. Research shows you can begin to ease the pain writing 15 minutes a day for three days. His book is The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with then Washington Post journalist Chunker Vidantam about his book, The Hidden Brain, How Our Unconscious Minds Elect Presidents, Control Markets, Wage Wars, and Save Our Lives. In fact, Chunker coined the term the hidden brain. So I told him, I don't know if you've noticed, but none of my brain is showing. <laughs> Good point, Morris. So the hidden brain is a metaphor. It's not meant to be a literal term, as in literally the part of the brain that's hidden, but it's a metaphor that describes a range of unconscious influences that affect people in their everyday lives. And I've used the term analogously with uh, the selfish gene, for example. It's not as if genes actually actively are selfish or they are jumping up saying, me first, me first. And in much the same way, the hidden brain is not necessarily physically hidden, but it's about the hiddenness of the brain, if you will. So what's conscious is certainly known to us. It's yes. those unconscious things that you're really talking about that have a vast impact on our lives personally and collectively. Correct. That's right. And I'm using the term unconscious a little differently than I think Freud would, which is why I also coined, I decided to coin a new term, because it's not really talking about the unconscious as this seething mass of impulses driven by sex and our parental upbringing and all of these complicated things in our psyche. Oh, no, I got really excited there for a little bit. It's in many ways the hidden brain that I'm writing about about and that has been researched the last 10 or 15 years is rather mundane. Uh, and the processes are actually rather mundane, but they turn out to have dramatically powerful implications and impacts in our everyday lives. Now, tell us some of the things that we do unconsciously that we're not aware of. Well, in some ways, the question should be turned around. Uh, and it sounds remarkable, but I think actually the better question to ask is tell me the things that you do consciously. Because okay, it seems that's as good. <laughs> yeah. that, we actually know about that. <laughs> it, it seems as if almost everything that we do is conscious. But the more scientists have peeked into the brain and the workings of the brain, the more and more they find that much of what we think is conscious is actually driven by unconscious processes of one kind or the other. And many scientists have actually gotten to the point where they've asked themselves not so much why we have an unconscious mind, but why it is we have a conscious mind, given that the unconscious seems to be so sophisticated and able to do everything from, you know, judge, you know, whether our romantic partners are right for us to whether we should invest in a stock to what we should do when a fire alarm goes off to our moral judgment. So the unconscious is really a sophisticated creature and it affects us. It's ubiquitous. It's but wait a minute. Yeah. Everything you listed there, a lot of people think they choose with their conscious mind. Yes, I know. And I, I do too. And I still feel that way after I wrote and report this book. But it turns out that it's not true. We feel that we are making conscious decisions. We feel we're thinking through things carefully and intentionally. But it turns out that in 
in much of our lives, we are swayed or tugged by these subtle influences that we're not aware of. And the most devilish thing about these influences is that once we have been manipulated, we somehow rationalize to ourselves that we're the ones who came up with it, that our conscious minds are the ones who came up with these behaviors and decisions. Well, we all know we make terrible decisions when we're angry, but it didn't occur to me we might be biased in our decisions when we're feeling comfortable or at peace or or anything that, you know, joy, actually that impacts our decisions and takes away from some sort of rational deduction of what we ought to do. Yes. So I think in much of our lives, these emotions certainly play a huge role in how we think about things. There has been research, for example, that shows that people make more aggressive stock investments when it's sunny outside than when it's cloudy outside. And of course, it makes no sense to invest in stocks depending on the weather, because the weather is not a useful predictor of where the stock market is going. Especially with climate disruption (laughs) shooting down our necks here. Exactly. But it's what scientists call in some ways a heuristic. People are using sort of a cue about the weather as an indicator about something else that is unrelated to the weather. And because in our everyday lives, we have all these different factors kicking around at the same time. We have our perception of the weather, how we are feeling that morning, whether our dog is healthy or not, and how our children are behaving, and how we have to judge whether to invest in one stock or the other. And if we read our horoscope. And if we read our horoscope that morning, (laughs) indeed. And so all these things are happening simultaneously. And so we feel that we can focus in on any one domain and think about it carefully, but we can't because all these other things are bleeding into it at the same time and tugging us subtly in one direction or the other. Shortly after this 2010 interview, Chunker Vidantam joined NPR. His journalism focuses on human behavior and the social sciences. You can hear him every week on the podcast, you guessed it, The Hidden Brain at npr.org. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Gene Kinney, the president and CEO of Prothena Biosciences. Prothena has a one-two-three punch for Alzheimer's, fighting amyloids, fighting tau's, and working on a vaccine to potentially prevent Alzheimer's in the future. We'll also talk about their work in Parkinson's and ALS, and on the role of amyloids in Down syndrome. Then it's Daniel Pink with The Power of Regret, how looking backward moves us forward. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Gene Kinney. Well, Gene, welcome back to the program. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me back. Now, you and I spoke prior to this interview, and two points stuck with me. Uh, Yes, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, but often people talk about their work treating symptoms. You were talking about two other points, treating the underlying disease and working on prevention, not early detection, but rather prevention. Are these two efforts, you know, completely separate, or do they actually inform each other? 
They do inform each other. In fact, you know, even our understanding around symptomatic treatments uh, inform how we think about the disease. And to be clear, we need both. We need symptomatic treatments, which has really been the mainstay of how we've thought about treating patients with Alzheimer's disease historically. And you know, an exciting now paradigm shift that we can see moves to disease-modifying treatments, treatments that do target the underlying cause and progression of the disease. And of course, what we believe is ultimately having those tools in the treatment armamentarium uh, will be better for patients in, in as much as we can actually think about both components. As we think about the shift from symptomatic treatments to disease-modifying treatments, what we're really talking about is moving from things that really address the function of the patient on a shorter term basis, something that helps patients function a little bit better. Those treatments tend to rely on the very cells, the very nerve cells or neurons in the brain that are actually affected by this disease. So as those cells continue to be lost, as the disease continues to progress, those symptomatic treatments become less effective unfortunately. So what's really needed in the field and what has been needed is a shift to thinking about how we preserve those cells and we actually slow the relentless progression of Alzheimer's disease. And of course, as we understand the biology related to that and think about therapeutic interventions that slow that progression, we can start to think a little bit further ahead to places where well, gee, if, if that biology is important with respect to the progression of disease, what is its influence on the cause of disease? Can we move even earlier in our thinking around treatment and start to talk about prevention of disease in the first place? And of course, the biology teaches us and informs us as we go and as we iterate the science and move these types of treatment approaches forward. Well, let's start with the disease itself. Who's at risk? How long does it take to develop? And what do we know about the underlying cause now? Yeah, Alzheimer's disease is a complex disease. Um, you know, there are multiple contributors to the disease, one of which can be genetic, and, and that informs us a lot about the biology that we think underlies the cause of the disease. Um, a number of genetic changes, particularly those that lead to an increase in a certain protein in the brain called amyloid beta. Uh, you may hear amyloid used quite a bit, so amyloid beta would be the protein that we're talking about here. Um, those genetic changes can actually lead to a cause of of Alzheimer's disease in a small number of individuals. It tends to be a very small percent of the total population of individuals that have Alzheimer's disease. In the majority of cases of individuals with Alzheimer's disease, they're idiopathic, meaning of unknown origin. We don't really know what causes the disease in those individuals per se. There tend to be a number of risk factors that are involved, many of which are genetic, some of which are environmental. Um, but at the end of the day, what we understand is that the biology that ultimately contributes to us being able to recognize recognize this as a disease called Alzheimer's disease are changes in these same biological pathways that were informed by those smaller number of genetic patients. So for example, changes in this protein amyloid beta, changes in either how it's produced, how it aggregates or how it's cleared, and, and where sometimes we see some deficiency in those processes, and then what that amyloid beta does to other proteins in the brain, proteins, for example, that go by the name of tau, and other proteins that are also changed in the context of disease. So we think these proteins are very important players in cause and progression of disease and inform, in fact, our thinking about how to therapeutically go after these, uh, these pathways so that we can think about slowing progression of disease. And in fact, um, as you know, there's some very exciting recent data that suggests, in fact, this may be a very feasible pathway. Just as you said, we, we hear about, well, there's all these genetics, but everybody in the family 
doesn't get it. You know, it's like, what's going on? And sometimes I hear the term, there's been also a toxic insult. What does that mean? Yeah, in the case of these proteins, um, what we think is happening is that proteins such as amyloid beta, um, when they go awry in the system and lead to a negative biological impact, they can actually lead to dysfunction, not just of nerve cells in the brain, but also of other proteins in the brain that lead to further impact on nerve cells in the brain. So we think that this insult begets insult. And, and this, when this process starts, it becomes problematic. It really all starts with protein dysregulation. So proteins are things that our cells make every day. And when those proteins are made, of course, they need to take on a certain three-dimensional shape in space in order to go and do what their normal function is. So, you know, a, a certain protein may be made, it may fold into an appropriate three-dimensional shape, and when that happens, it can bind to other proteins and, and go on and do what it's supposed to do, either, you know, feed the cells and make sure that the cells are healthy, it may go on to make tissue, it may go on to make teeth, it may go on to do all, all sorts of other things. And of course, that's what we want to happen, that's a normal healthy protein process, but of course, it doesn't always work perfectly. And when those, when those proteins are made and they take on a shape that's not normal, it's not functional, it's dysfunctional, well, then we actually have systems in our cells that, that recognize those proteins and literally tag them for removal with the, the kind of internal trash cans of the cells, if you will. And where we get into trouble with disease is when those proteins that are not in the correct shape, the proteins that have gone awry, they've become the bad actors. When those proteins actually start to overwhelm that trash clearance system, they start to aggregate, sometimes with inside the cell, sometimes outside the cell, and they lead to a number of processes that can be reflected then as disease and the symptoms of disease. And in fact, we think this is very relevant in Alzheimer's disease. We think these proteins like amyloid beta, which tend to be form these sticky clumps outside of the cells in the brain and lead to a number of problematic biological processes, one of which is to actually further dysregulate another protein, which is called tau, which then leads to neuronal dysfunction and ultimately the, the lack of clarity of thinking that's diagnosed as Alzheimer's disease. But one thing leads to another, and you expect that your body is going to remove those things, those proteins, which were not generated correctly, and, but for some reason it's not in this case. I think that's right. That's correct. Now, let me stop you here. Uh, you've been working on Alzheimer's for many years now in your career. And if there's one thing that changes over time and has changed, it's technology. It gets better and better. And that means science gets better and better. What can technology and science tell us now about Alzheimer's uh, that we just didn't know, say, I don't know, 10 years ago or pick a time frame here? Yeah, no, 10 years is a good time frame. I've been in uh, thinking about therapeutics and Alzheimer's disease for many decades. So 10 years seems like a fair number. And I'll say that, you know, the, the, the change in how we think about the disease on multiple fronts has evolved 
very dramatically over that time period. You know, in the first instance, we can think about the disease biology itself and what we understand about the disease biology. You know, for many years, the relationship, for example, between amyloid beta and tau, these two key proteins, wasn't fully understood. And we're still learning about certain aspects of that. But we've, we have a much better understanding that these, these two proteins are likely on a critical pathway to the development of the symptoms that underlie Alzheimer's disease. Um, we think more, uh, you know, sophisticated way about how we actually target these proteins. You know, where on these protein sequences do we want to intervene in order to have the best biological impact. If it's their shape and space that leads to their bad biology, where can we best intervene in that shape in order to ameliorate or, or negate that bad biology and, and restore the normal good biology? And these are important learnings that we've made over the years. But I'd have to say, you know, one of the areas where we've seen just remarkable progress over the years has been how we assess these treatments that intervene in a clinical trial setting. So as you know, there are multiple steps that we think about with respect to clinical trials. Uh, there are state, uh, phase one studies, phase two studies, phase three studies. But, you know, Alzheimer's is a complex disease. It, it, it likely the biology underlying Alzheimer's disease has been resident for many years before the symptoms actually appear and, and, and a patient receives a diagnosis. So in the context of that very long, slowly progressing disease, how do we assess the potential benefit in a relatively short period of time? And here, progress around the development of biomarkers, the use of non-invasive brain scans to understand, for example, if individuals have large amounts of this amyloid beta protein in their brains have really evolved significantly over the year. Or over the years, I'll, I'll tell you a, a story that, you know, from the scientific space, when the very first brain scans, these are called PET scans, became available to measure amyloid beta in the brain, there were two studies ongoing, both of which reported data, independent studies, two different companies. And in each of the studies, they found that approximately 30 to 35% of patients that were evaluated did not have sufficient levels of amyloid in their brains in order to register on these scans. And of course, if you're treating individuals with anti-amyloid treatments, you want to know for sure that there's a sufficient amount of amyloid there that you could potentially make a difference. And so I think, you know, those kinds of learnings have now been incorporated into how we think about clinical studies. I think, um, you know, scientists across the field are much better thinking about which type of patient that might volunteer for such a study would be most likely to receive benefit during the course of the study, how we actually measure change over time. And I can come back to that. But, you know, the, the way we actually measure change in a relatively short period of time is absolutely critical because we need the right sensitivity to be able to see less change over time. Um, and even understanding, you know, some key uh, biology that allows to deliver higher doses of these types of agents over that period of time so that we have the potential to accrue benefit and be able to report that out in the context of a clinical study. So it really does take a village. And what we've seen is that as certain companies have gone in and run clinical trials in this space, those learnings have informed the next set of studies and those learnings the next. And I think this is exactly how science is supposed to work. And we've seen real examples of that over the last 10 years here in Alzheimer's disease. Well, let me ask you this question. If a third of the people in these studies who had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's because of various symptoms that are observable um, externally, uh, does it mean that 
amyloids were involved or that uh, the amyloid plaque, it depended where it laid in the brain that demonstrated the symptoms or... Or what? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's we a very say that, we we say that in science a lot. Or what? <laughs> right. No, I. You know, it's funny. It 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 really depends on whether you're speaking to a uh, a physician that might be a clinician diagnosing these patients, and of course, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is a clinical diagnosis, and it's based on a fulsome uh, evaluation, typically by a neurologist, um, that that would ultimately come to that diagnosis. Um, I think what we're talking about in this instance is relevant biology. So, you know, as we think about uh, the presence of this protein and, and seeing it in sufficient quantities, I think what we can all agree to is whether we have a propensity to, to define the disease biologically or, or clinically is probably less important than the statement that if, if we want to see a benefit of a drug that targets a certain type of protein, we want to make sure that protein's there. Um, and then we can have a, a very... Uh, academic debate as to whether those individuals actually have Alzheimer's disease or some variant thereof, right? And I think that's a, a different discussion, but at least from, you know, understanding which individuals may be most likely to benefit from these types of treatments. It's a very important step forward and certainly was at the time, you know, the development of these types of biomarker approaches. Now they're routinely used. We see them, uh, you know, in almost every clinical study, uh, these types of non-invasive brain scanning technologies are employed to make sure that the appropriate patients are included in clinical study and also to evaluate changes in the amyloid level of patients in their brain in a non-invasive way over time. And, you know, as we start to look at where we are today and where the field is moving, we're still seeing significant progress. The, the use of blood-based biomarkers, so a blood test, for example, which seems now to actually relate well to those brain scans are things that are starting to be evaluated and evolving in real time. So certainly what we hope is that we can even move away from these types of brain scans in the future and move to a more simple blood test that would give us similar types of information. Well, I like the idea, you know, you go in for your annual or whenever you finally get in and they say, oh, we're going to do blood tests. They start taking all this blood out of you. If one of the tests could be looking at this, it'd be, I'd be very happy. I would be very happy. Yeah. Now let's talk about what Prothena itself is doing, because I know... Well, you have a number of drugs, one of which is in phase three of human clinical trials, the, the final phase before approval. Let's talk about what you're doing, because you have a whole coordinated effort here. We do. So as, you know, as we saw the changes happening in the field at Prothena, and, you know, maybe I'll, I'll back up a moment. Prothena as a company actually started out of another company by the name of Elan Pharmaceuticals. And, you know, when we spun out from Elan, what was notable there was just the historical perspective that we had in this space. So much of the work around targeting this protein amyloid beta, um, thinking about how tau and amyloid beta are related, much of that basic scientific understanding came from the scientists at Elan and then ultimately uh, that came to Prothena as we started this company. And so what we saw, you know, in, in the field was were these advances in how we were assessing clinical trial design elements. And so, you know, let me give you a, a kind of a way to think about this. Um, you know, if we think about Alzheimer's as a relatively complex disease, multiple things contributing to it, and then we have to measure 
what happens when you actually intervene in that process to the progression of disease. The way I like to think about it is it's akin to a steamship on sailing across the ocean. Um, you have a steam engine. There are multiple parts to a steam engine. And, you know, if we want to target amyloid beta, it's, it's somewhat similar to stop shoveling coal into the steam engine. But in order to understand if that's effective, I now have to measure the speed of the ship over the next, you know, let's call it 100 meters and ask if the ship has slowed down its speed or not. And so we need very sensitive measures to be able to measure that the ship has slowed down. We need to be able to measure the effectiveness of that approach. And I think in that analogy, what we saw was we were getting much better at that as a field, as a village. The entire community was working together to bring together better measurement tools. We went from, you know, the old sailing adage of using a rope with knots on it to measure speed to actually GPS tracking system. We, we, we could calculate how much, you know, the ship would slow in speed if we made a manipulation to the steam boiler below. And in fact, that's as we saw that progress, we said, well, my goodness, um, you know, we think that this is the right time to really be able to now move what we know about the biology and iterate this field forward. So what we did at Prathena was we endeavored to develop um, what we would call a potential best-in-class molecule. The idea being that, you know, the first-generation approaches, which are likely to be successful, um, may have some limitations with respect to how easily accessible they are to every patient. And, and what we wanted to make sure in a molecule that targeted amyloid beta is that any patient that could be benefited by this approach would have access to it. And so we needed to move away from IV infusion centers and, and to a more at-home delivery system. And so we, we made a, a, an antibody given, you know, using our experience and, and historical perspective that's really designed to be administered once a month, subcutaneously, single syringe, um, ultimately at home delivery. And that's what we call our target profile. So that's what we, uh, we set out to do. We set out to make an antibody with those characteristics. That antibody's name is Pyrex-12. It's currently in phase one clinical studies. And our job now is to prove that, in fact, we have such an antibody through empirical testing in the clinical space. And so that molecule is moving forward. That, if you will, you mentioned a one, two, three, five, we feel like that's number one, right? Let's make sure we have a foundational treatment that provides some benefit that any patient that will benefit from access will have access to. And so we think that's a very important first step. And that's an anti-amyloid. That's correct. That's correct. And so that's of the class of drugs where we're seeing clinical data from some of our friends and colleagues in the field today, suggesting that, in fact, that type of approach is providing some benefit to slowing disease progression. So that's punch number one. Okay, what's punch number two? Punch number two is to do better. If we have patients that are already diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, we want to move forward and actually provide a better set of drugs, a better relief, a better efficacy profile uh, for patients. And what does that mean? Well, it means doing more things to the steam engine. In addition to stop shoveling coal in, maybe we actually throw some water on the coal that's already hot in that steam engine. And I think, you know, there we think about other parts of biology that we can combine with this amyloid beta uh, targeting approach. A great example of that would be this protein tau that we've talked about. And in fact, um, we are working with our friends at Bristol-Myers Squibb on an antibody that was developed and invented here at Prothena, which is known as PRX005, which actually targets this protein tau. Now, Currently, it's being developed independently and alone, but we, you know, we think at some point it might make some sense uh, to combine a tau-targeting approach 
with an amyloid targeting approach to see if we can't do better. And I'd point to other areas of science where this uh, type of approach um, I think is you know well known. I mean, we, if we look to the HIV field, for example, the first therapy in that space that really made a, a significant difference for patients was AZT. Um, but AZT wasn't uh, perfect, uh, as no drug is perfect. And um, what we saw was that the field moved to next generation drugs that were a little bit better. And then we moved to combination approaches, which were a little bit better. And ultimately, we moved HIV from a fatal disease to a disease that now is chronically manageable. And I think that's kind of how we see the future that we'd like to, to deliver for Alzheimer's disease, to move from what is today a 100% fatal disease to something that ultimately becomes chronically manageable. Um, but then ultimately, we need the third punch, which is to prevent this disease from occurring in the first place. I'm speaking with Dr. Jean Kinney, president and CEO of Prothena Biosciences. We'll talk more after a break. Biotechnician interviews are also individually podcast. Click through on technation.com or directly at biotechnation.com or subscribe separately through your favorite podcaster. Podcasts of whole technation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, Daniel Pink talks about regret and better yet, how to get rid of it. No need to push it down if you can get it out of your system or at least minimize the pain. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Dr. Gene Kinney, President and CEO of Prothena Biosciences, about Prothena's 123 Punch for Alzheimer's. We see the future that we'd like to, to deliver for Alzheimer's disease, to move from what is today a 100% fatal disease to something that ultimately becomes chronically manageable. Um, but then ultimately, we need the third punch which is to prevent this disease from occurring in the first place. And the way we think about prevention is to move even earlier into the process, to understand if there are individuals that have the biology, the predisposition that they may likely develop Alzheimer's disease as a clinical disease later, and understand if we can intervene at that point 
whether we can actually either slow that transition to clinical Alzheimer's disease or ideally prevent it altogether. And I think, you know, there, what we see as being important is a very easy to take, easy approach modality. And so what we think of in that space is a vaccine. Most of your listeners will be familiar with vaccines, with, uh, you know, the recent COVID vaccines that have been out. And so, you know, it's a slight shift in how we think about treatments from the monoclonal antibodies that we're talking about in the treatment setting now to a vaccine. Because with a vaccine, I'm asking you and your immune system to make the antibodies due to the vaccination. And so it's a little bit different. It provides a different modality, a different approach. Um, but we have developed a vaccine that we expect to start clinical trials next year on, known as PRX123. And that vaccine is designed to ask your body to generate antibodies to both amyloid and to tau simultaneously. And with the idea then that we can address whether that affects the relevant biology before you even have Alzheimer's disease in the first place. And so we're very excited about that approach. And we think between the three approaches, it moves us to a place where we can talk about um, the first generation of targeting amyloid alone and having a best approach there to a second place of improving an efficacy profile in patients that have disease, and then ultimately moving that treatment paradigm into a prevention setting. Do you have any sense whether this would be a vaccine? Well, everybody just gets it. Everybody gets a shingles vaccine. You know, Everybody just gets it. Or will it be for those who have, say, a particular genetic profile or a history in their family? Yeah. So in the first instance, it's probably the latter is where you would start. You'd want to know that uh, individuals had a predisposition to develop the disease. Um, and you'd want to make sure that just from a risk benefit perspective, we're testing something new in clinical science. We want to make sure that, um, that that's appropriate. And so likely you'd go into, in, you, you, you'd take that kind of approach and you'd start your initial clinical evaluation in individuals that were, had, had a higher likelihood of ultimately going on to develop disease. Um, and importantly, individuals that had the relevant biology that, was, that you felt was important to ultimately leading to disease. Um, that paradigm is known as a secondary prevention paradigm. So you kind of have that precedent biology, but haven't yet developed the clinical manifestations of the disease, in this case, Alzheimer's disease. Ultimately, what you're pointing to, which I think is the golden ring and where ultimately we'd like to see all of this end, quite frankly, is in something called primary prevention. And primary prevention is really where everyone is vaccinated uh, to the extent that uh, folks are willing to be vaccinated. And, you know, the goal then would be to stop the biology uh, really before it really had a chance to take hold. And I think, you know, you, in terms of how we think about in other fields, stepping through medicine and, and, and developing iterative knowledge that we can apply to the next step, more typically you'd see success in secondary prevention for this type of approach before you'd move to primary prevention studies. Well, I know you're very busy over at Prathena. I mean, it's not just Alzheimer's. Uh, you're also working on Parkinson's. You and I had an interview several years ago about what you were doing there um, and uh, ALS. You're also looking at the role of amyloids in Down syndrome. Yeah, we do have a program. It's still in the preclinical stages, but we have a program targeting uh, Alzheimer's disease in individuals with Down syndrome. Um, we think that's a, a very potentially important 
uh, therapeutic that, that needs to be brought forward. And, and the reason for that is that if you think about the, the chromosome that's responsible for Down syndrome, it, it actually overlaps a bit with this protein that we're discussing, this amyloid beta protein. And so a, a very high number of individuals with Down syndrome will ultimately develop Alzheimer's disease in their later years. And so we think, um, you know, we think given our, our understanding of this space, our evolving understanding of the biology, particularly around the role of these proteins and their effect on brain function and brain structures, um, that there are certain ways to think about this specifically in the context of Down syndrome, which may make sense. So it's it's still in the uh, preclinical space. We haven't started clinical trials yet, but we're very excited about that approach uh, and that program. And we think it's a logical extension of the knowledge that we've built by understanding how these proteins operate in the context of idiopathic, again, go back to that term, idiopathic uh, Alzheimer's disease, meaning uh, the, the broad-based Alzheimer's disease of unknown origin. Now, while that's still an early stage yet, you have a number of trials in, in several of these areas going on. How would people find out about what's going on and if they or their loved ones might qualify? Yeah. So as you point out, our, our knowledge, our core fundamental knowledge really is around how these proteins become dysregulated and, and lead to ultimately organ dysfunction that leads to disease. So as you're pointing out, you know, that can occur certainly in the central nervous system, in the brain, and, and that's relevant to diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, as we've discussed. It can also occur in the periphery. So in the, in the periphery, um, you can see cardiac or heart involvement. You can see um, you can see kidney involvement, which can lead to dysfunction of those organs for a different set of diseases known as the systemic amyloid diseases. So these are diseases such as AL amyloidosis or ATTR amyloidosis. And in our portfolio, we have a number of molecules that are in clinical trial um, any in, in different stages, anywhere from phase one to phase three clinical trials for either these peripheral amyloid diseases or these central nervous system amyloid diseases. And if uh, your listeners are interested, they can certainly go to prothena.com. They can click on the clinical trials tab and uh, there'll be access there to all of the various clinical trials and they can learn more about those and discuss those with their uh, physician of choice. Well, this is certainly an exciting time for, for all of these diseases or this cluster of diseases, if you will. I think so. I, you know, as I said before, having been in this field for uh, a number of decades and, and thinking about therapeutic approaches for diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, I don't think it can be understated how, how, how exciting the, the current period of time is. Thinking about a shift from symptomatic treatments to disease-modifying treatments. And I think as we've discussed on this call, um, once you can start thinking about disease-modifying treatments in the context of slowing disease progression, it allows you to think about how you expand that biology to, to iterate in, on the disease modification side and, and do better in terms of treating patients, but then also to change the paradigm yet again. And um, that's an exciting moment, I, I think, for any field and a particularly exciting moment for Alzheimer's disease, which is a particularly cruel disease as we see today. And one, uh, the, until uh, very recently, uh, we didn't have a good idea really how we were going to slow down the progression of this disease. Well, Gene, always a pleasure. Thank you for coming on and, and know you're always welcome here. Well, thank you so much. It's great, great talking to you and I appreciate being here. Dr. Gene Kinney is the president and CEO 
of Prothena Biosciences. More information is available at Prothena.com. That's P-R-O-T-H-E-N-A, Prothena.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Daniel Pink. You may know him from his many books or from his TED Talk on motivation, watched by 29 million viewers. He's here today with the power of regret, how looking backward moves us forward. Well, Daniel, welcome back to Tech Nation. Moira, great to be with you. Now, I was so surprised this time around for this book. You picked the topic of regret. Talk about something that's individual to each person and emotionally charged and by its definition, not in a terrifically positive way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've hit all three. Uh, You put all three of the reasons to my mind to write this kind of book. Um, So let's go for each of them. Number one, that it is emotionally charged. Um, One of the things that I discovered in working on this book is that we don't do a very good job of dealing with our negative emotions. And in some ways, and I think the pandemic is bringing this out, we are kind of, we've been over-indexed on positivity and we don't know what to do with our negative emotions. And so I wanted to discover that. The other thing is that, you know, if you look at this emotion of regret, it is ubiquitous. There's plenty of research showing that it is one of the most common emotions of any kind that we have. It's the most common negative emotion that we have. Uh, And and to me, after doing all this research, it's hard to take, but it's harder to avoid. And actually, if we deal with it in a sensible way, we can actually turn regret into an engine for progress. One thing that I learned when uh, I read this book is that there isn't just regret. There are different kinds of regret. Sure. Uh, so one of the things that, that I did for, for this body of, of work is that I decided to do a lot of research on my own. So I looked at some of the academic research. I did a big, actually, public opinion survey, but I also did something that proved to be even more revelatory. And it was something that I called the World Regret Survey, where I invited people around the world to submit their regrets. And we ended up with <laughs> 16,000, over six, where I have over 17,000 now, over 17,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. So this massive trove of human longing and aspiration. And what I found, being the sort of person who's willing to read through 17,000 regrets, is that over and over again around the world, people kept expressing the same four core regrets. And I'll tell you very quickly what they are. And it's irrespective of the domain of life. At some level, the way that we were thinking about regret in the past was a little bit off. We would say, oh, this is an education regret or a career regret or a romance regret. And what I found is that a layer beneath, there are these four core regrets. So one of them are what I call foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are, if only I'd done the work. These are people who regret smoking, who regret not exercising enough, who regret not taking care of their bodies, not saving money, not working hard in school, small choices that accumulate to big consequences. Second category, boldness regrets if only I take in the chance. And this is the kind of thing where it doesn't matter the domain of life. I have hundreds of people in this database who regret not asking somebody out on a date years ago. Uh, Hundreds of people who regret not starting a business. Hundreds of people, all kinds of, I mean, you know, Tech Nation listeners, if you want a business idea, start a travel agency for people, Americans who didn't study abroad in college. It's one of like, (laughs) comes up all the time. So boldness. What? I'm telling you, there's so many people, Moira, who have that regret. So many college graduates who have that regret. So 
Boldness and regrets are if only I'd taken the chance. Moral regrets are if only I'd done the right thing. These are people who regret bullying people when they were younger, who regret sort of stealing and other kinds of misdeeds, a lot of marital infidelity on that. And then finally, our connection regrets. And these are regrets about relationships, um, not only romantic relationships, in fact, mostly not romantic relationships that should be intact, that somehow come apart and people don't want to reach out to bring them back together and they regret it. So um, so these four regrets, foundation, boldness, moral and connection are really this kind of hidden architecture of what we, you know, to me, what we want out of life. Why are Olympic gold medalists and bronze medalists happier than silver medalists? <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> this is a crazy thing. All right. So you would think logically that, and this goes to the heart of what regret is. You would think logically that you line up a bunch of medalists on the podium. The happiest person is the gold medalist. The second happiest person is a silver medalist. And the third happiest person is the bronze medalist. And you would be wrong. Uh, what a, a pile of research, starting with some work done by Vicky Medvek and Tom Gilovich uh, almost 30, about 30 years ago, and replicated many, many times, is that the happiest person on the podium, as people evaluate their facial expressions, gold medalist, no surprise. But the second happiest person, the bronze medalist. They're often beaming. The person who doesn't look all that pumped, the silver medalist. And this is the reason why. We human beings are incredible uh, time travelers and storytellers. And that those capacities combine to make us good at what's called counterfactual thinking, counterfactual thinking. So, so situations that run counter to the actual facts. So the person who got the silver medalist says, if only I kicked a little harder, I'd be a gold medalist. All right. That's an upward counterfactual. The person who got the bronze medalist says, oh, at least I didn't finish fourth. I'm happy about that. And that's a downward counterfactual. And so regret is the quintessential upward counterfactual. It begins with this feeling of if only. That makes us feel bad. And all of us have these regrets. But they also, if we treat them right, they help us do a lot better on a whole range of tasks. I absolutely love the name of your uh, chapter entitled The Life-Threatening Nonsense of No Regrets. <laughs> there are those people. The past is the past. You can't change it. Don't put any energy in there. It's like, why are you even saying this? Why is this an issue? Well, I mean, it's a really bad, I mean, no regrets is a very bad blueprint for life. This idea that I never look backward. I never look backward. I never think about my mistakes. I never think about what I did wrong. I just endlessly am positive and plow forward. That is a very bad strategy for life. And the truth is, is that for most people who at least profess it, they're not telling the truth. They're <laughs> pretending. They're performing. Because what we know from 60 years of research is that everybody has regrets. Everybody has regrets. The only people without regrets truly are five-year-olds because their brains haven't developed, people with lesions in the orbital frontal cortex of their brain because that lesion is disturbing the processing of counterfactual thinking and regret, certain kinds of people with Huntington's disease and Parkinson's disease and sociopaths. So if you don't have regrets, it's a sign that you're either a tiny child or you have a grave problem because the rest of us have regrets. They are ubiquitous. And the reason they're ubiquitous is because they are useful. Our regrets instruct us. Our regrets clarify the path for us if we treat them right. Well, the good news is that you can learn from your mistakes. 
Isn't that part of it? Totally. If you are willing to, if you are willing to confront them, and, and this is this is the key, Moira. That's like we have this notion. You asked a little bit about no, there's no regrets philosophy. We think that saying I have no regrets is a sign of courage. That's not courage. That's delusion. What is courage is staring your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. And that's how we learn. And and so, but the problem is, and I don't, I don't want to put. I'm not blaming people out there. My position is that we've sort of, in our broader society, we have sort of over-indexed on positivity. We think that we have to be positive all the time, and it's important to be positive. And we want to have a lot of positive emotions, and positive emotions should outnumber our negative emotions. But if negative emotions help us, we need them to survive. I mean, you're a biotech person. There's a reason evolution put negative emotions in our brains, right? Because it instructs us. And what we need to do with our regret is, I mean, okay, I'll use a 50 cent word that I know that your listeners can deal with, which is anthropomorphize, all right? We want to anthropomorphize <laughs> our regrets, right? Some of us want to look at our regrets and say they are strangers who we should ignore. Ignore the regrets. Some of them are, say, let's look at them as St. Peter at the gate, passing final judgment on your worth as a human being. That's dangerous too. What we want to do is look at regret as a teacher. We don't want to ignore our regrets. We don't want to wallow in our regrets. We want to think about them. We want to confront them because when we do, there's a pile of evidence showing they can help us make better decisions. They can help us become better problem solvers, and they can deepen our sense of meaning in life. Okay. How do you know you're really denying a regret? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, it depends. I guess it's sort of when you, when you, t you okay, so let's think about it. regret is a negative feeling. Regret is a negative feeling. All right. And there's sometimes we just want to banish that negative feeling and that's okay in some cases. So let's say, so I've got a guy in, who I write about who got a tattoo. I got plenty of people who have tattoos that say no regrets. I got one guy who got a, who got a tattoo that said no regrets, 14 years later, regretted it and had his tattoo removed. So that's something that he can do to address that regret. Um, we can undo regrets of inaction, regrets of uh, regrets of action, regrets of inaction. When we regret what we didn't do, I didn't ask him out on a date. I didn't start that business. I didn't take that chance. I didn't reach out to my friend before she died. Um, when those things stick with us, there's, there's a, it's a sign when they keep knocking at our door. It's a sign that we should open the door and pay attention to them. And there are many of these regrets that if we just if we go through a process where we say, you know what, I have a regret that makes me human. Let me try to make sense of it and extract a lesson from it going forward. That is one of the healthiest things that we can do. Let's go back to this idea of inaction and action regrets. Action regrets often last longer, last shorter, because we can do something about them. We can make amends. We can repair we can do what those bronze medalists did, which is at least them and find the silver lining in them. But inaction regrets often gnaw at us for a very long time. And one of the things you see in the data is that around age 20, people have roughly equal numbers of action and inaction regrets. But as they age, those inaction regrets start to predominate because they keep they don't necessarily knock. They don't necessarily pound at our door. But they tap at our door. 5 a.m. 5 a.m. is when they come. <laughs> that, that, and that tapping is not going to go away unless you unless you confront it intelligently. Well, another way to do this, as you say, is to relive and relieve. Mm. What are you talking about? Yeah. Again, 
one of the problems we have, Moira, is that, we, is that nobody ever taught us how to deal with negative emotions. We, we say, oh, forget about them. Be positive. All right. And that, you, you can get through a couple of days that way, maybe a couple of weeks. But eventually what happens is, is that you can't banish them forever. And so people end up getting brought down by them. So what you need is you need to deal with these things systematically. So the, the first step, in my view, is you actually have to treat yourself with what is known as self-compassion. This is the work of Kristen Neff at the University of Texas. For someone like me, sort of who sort of prides himself on being a hard-headed guy, that phrase, self-compassion, sounded a little gooey to me. But the research on this is very impressive. It's very impressive. And the concept is very powerful. And essentially what it is is this. The first step is to treat yourself with the same kind of kindness that you would treat somebody else. We tend to treat ourselves with contempt rather than kindness. We make a mistake and our self-talk is so brutal. It's so cruel. We would never treat any talk to anybody that way. So self-compassion says, treat yourself with kindness. Also, don't think you're that special. If I have a regret about not reaching out, do you think I'm the only one without that without regret? No way. So 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 recognize your regrets are part of the human experience and they don't fully define you. The next step, which is really interesting, is to disclose the regret, disclose the regret. Now, what's interesting about this is that disclosure is a form of unburdening. Uh, so it relieves it. And, and when we relive it by disclosing it, we do something really powerful that I didn't really realize until I looked at this research. The, our negative emotions are blobby and abstract. But when we convert them to language, we defang them. We take these blobby, menacing abstractions and put them into concrete, less fearsome words. And so that minimizes them. By reliving the event, we, we actually minimize it. We convert it into language, which is less menacing. And then that helps us make sense of it. And, the, and then the other thing about disclosure, which is that we've, we've gotten disclosure wrong. We think that when we disclose our vulnerabilities and our mistakes, people like us less. Nope. They like us more. They admire our courage. They empathize with us. So you look inward and reframe it. Give your, let yourself off the hook. You express outward and disclose it to make sense of it. And then you draw a lesson from it. And this is key. You got to say, okay, you know, and, and one thing you can do to draw a lesson from it is what's called self-distancing, which is, it sounds weird, but talk to yourself in the, in the third person. So instead of, if you, Moira, are dealing with a regret, don't say, what should I do? Say, what should Moira do? Or even better, ask yourself, what would you tell your best friend to do in response to this regret? What lesson does it teach you? And then what should your friend do next? And follow that. Interesting. Right when you were talking, you said, yes, say Moira, as if Moira, you are talking to yourself. Or better, have your best friend tell you. And it's what would your best friend tell you? I was, I was amazed because the moment you switched from Moira to my best friend, there was a lot of judgment that left precisely precisely that's the thing i mean one of the things that comes out in a, in this research and it, it goes this goes way beyond regret moira is that we tend to be terrible at solving our own problems um and the reason is that we're too enmeshed in the details we don't see the big picture but we're pretty good at solving other people's problems because there's less of the judgment that you're talking about you're less of a scuba diver and more of an oceanographer. 
And so what you have to do in, in a way, and there's some great research on self-distancing. I mean, uh, Ethan Cross at, um, at University of Michigan has done some really, really great work on this. Uh, Igor Grossman at the University of Waterloo in uh, Ontario has done some really great work on this, is what you want to do is just take it, is, 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 is distance yourself in, in space, in time. Think about your, do, do something even like, imagine you take your regret and you're just a doctor of regret sciences and you're examining it in a laboratory and you're just diagnosing it as a specimen. But again, I've always thought that one of the best decision-making tools, forget about regret and anything, is what would you tell your best friend to do? And if you think about that, people almost instantly know the answer. And what would you tell your best friend to do is, is not saying, oh, just bury that regret for 40 years and don't deal with it and it'll never emerge. You say, hey, you know what, maybe, you know, let yourself off the hook, T talk to me about it, and let's come up with a plan. I also want to point out when you say write or talk about your, you know, to relive this in your regret, you actually have some short, uh, short in terms of days, how you do this. Let's go there. Sure. I mean, there, it, there's some interesting research. Um, this is sort of the work of both Sonia Libermorsky at the University of California, Riverside, and then James Pennebaker, who has done some incredible research at the University of Texas for 30 years on the importance of just writing about, uh, writing as a form of, of sense-making. But truly, if you take your regret and write about it for 15 minutes a day for three consecutive days, that is going to defang it considerably. And even more important, it's going to begin the sense-making process. Again, you're, you're, you're converting it. Regret is this stomach-churning feeling, and, and writing about it is in some ways an antacid. And it allows you to sort of mellow it out and then to make, and then to make sense of it. Okay, this is what I learned. So next time, I'm going to speak up. Next time, I'm going to ask her out on a date. Next time, I am going to tell the truth. 15 minutes a day for three days in a row. Yes. And there will be some difference. That's That can be done. That can be done. Yeah. It absolutely can be done. And I am, you know, the more time I spend working on this stuff, the more I think, like, we, we got to go for small wins. Short, easy, interventions that, that that move the needle, forgive the cliche, uh, a little bit. What I don't want is say, and therefore, if you have regrets, be, please begin my nine-week process that requires two hours a day of meditation. No. Um, let yourself off the hook. And if you want, write about your regret for 15 minutes a day for three days. And that will begin the sense-making process, which will allow you to extract a lesson for, from it for next time. And it's day one of your three-day writing journey. Right. Right. Find your regret, write about it for 15 minutes a day, and then send that email to Moira. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'll regret not reading them all. No. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel, such a pleasure. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for having me, Moira. Always a, always a delight. My guest today has been Daniel Pink. His book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward, is now out in paperback for Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by Name Lab Incorporated of San Francisco. 
Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.